Hey, look, let me tell you about Matt Damon. You'll be familiar, he's an actor, Matt Damon. He married a lady called Lucina. There she is. They met in a bar in 2003. Matt was hiding from the paparazzi whilst he was filming in Miami, a film called Stuck on You. I haven't seen it, but it looks quite interesting. Okay. Uh, I found this by Googling something. And so Matt was hiding from the paparazzi and Lucina was serving at the bar and they got into a conversation and got very friendly and eventually started seeing each other. And two years later, he proposed, gave her this amazing, amazing platinum ring, which she still wears. And then December of 2005, they had a quiet marriage in a, in a small place, just a quiet family affair. And they're now looking after three kids they've had together and the one child that Lucina had from a previous marriage. And if you ever hear them on TV, whenever he does uh, a news, uh, you know, a, a movie premiere, he's always speaking glowingly of her as being his soulmate. And it's an incredible Hollywood marriage because normally they don't work out, or usually you wouldn't see a marriage between between someone of such a high status or so famous as Matt Damon and someone unknown like Lucina, his wife. And yet this is one of those marriages that's really worked out. I tell you that because we're in Ruth 4 and we're going to see we're going to see the marriage now beginning to take shape will actually occur today in some form between not Matt Damon and Lucina but between Boaz, the wealthy, powerful landowner, you know, uh, the uh, Matt Damon of the story, if you like, uh, to a Lucina, just like Ruth, an unknown, a foreigner, uh, a Moabitess, and that's very, very significant. I'm going to have to put these down. I can't, I, I'm not too many things. If this sermon doesn't make sense, blame the glasses. <laughs> okay. So, you know, she's just a common Okay, poor peasant, foreigner, you know, and being a foreigner in that climate, you know, made a difference. And so, I've got the one heading for us, Boaz secures his marriage to Ruth. Boaz secures his marriage to Ruth. And we're going to go through the verses, we're going to try and do some detail, but not too much. We'll see how we're doing. First one, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. So these were ancient cities. They had high walls. That was typical. This is how you protected your inhabitants. Therefore, you needed gates. Those gates, there were several around the city, were the place where you hung out, where grumpy old men got together of an evening and chatted, and you did business, and whatever else. If you were looking for employment, you may hang around there. So, so Boaz goes to the place where you're likely to bump into you know, uh, whoever's someone in town. He arrives there, he needs to see this gentleman, and we're told he went up to the, to the gate, he sat there to do his business. Remember what the business is there for? What did he promise Ruth? That he would... Yeah, he would redeem it. He would see to it that she becomes his wife, but there was an issue, there's complication. Can anyone, anyone remember the complication? Why Boaz... Boaz can't just take her to be his wife? What's the complication? 
He's second in line. And that hierarchy is important, intrinsic to biblical law. And so he has to first of all see if the first in line wants to marry her. But Boaz has already given his word to Ruth that he's going to marry her. So he's now got to do some, some very clever um, jiggling to make sure that the first in line doesn't want to marry Ruth. Because otherwise he's stuck. So he's got to present this whole scenario in a manner to the first in line that is as unappealing as Boaz can possibly make it. Otherwise he's going to be on a loser. Remember, he's fallen in love with this woman. He's got to somehow persuade this guy that he doesn't want to do this. And so here he is, he sat there, no doubt he's brought this before God, praying, and then we're told, verse 1 continuing, when the kinsman's redeemer he had mentioned came along, so when the blow comes, he doesn't have a name because he's not very important. Seriously, in biblical, in biblical language, if you don't get a name, you're really insignificant. Okay, here's a really insignificant guy. Right, the kinsman redeemer comes along and Boaz says to him, or said to him, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Sounds, you know, even they go, come over here and have a seat, mate. You know something's going on here when, when he's offering this kind of hospitality. And so the very fact that he's come, he's got this opportunity, is again providence. Remember we said providence can be the most subtle, sublime thing taking place and it can just seem like ordinary you know I just happened to step across the road just in time before that bus came it was just chance and yet it wasn't and Christian we do have to understand this that nothing in your life is just happening nothing however menial or ordinary insignificant there's something behind what's happening in your life and this moment Boaz is there. The kinsman's redeemer turns up. It's happening under the guise of providence. Verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and, sa- and said, sit here. And they did so. So in order for this transaction to be legal, there have to be witnesses. He's chosen the elders. Now, you know, we have elders and deacons in churches. And it comes from this community language that the Jews had. If you were an elder, you weren't just an older person. You were regarded as someone with some wisdom, someone who's mature. Your older state, your possibly lack of hair or your grey hair, you know, generally suggested you were wiser. I say generally suggested that. You know, it doesn't always follow, does it? Uh, but you know, so these are the older, wiser men of standing uh, the type of men you would want to, to, to oversee a, a transaction of this nature something that's going to carry weight in the community and, and so here he is verse 3 Boaz puts the matter to him listen to this he said to the kinsman's redeemer Naomi who has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belongs to our brother Elimelech so we Let's, let's, we need to, you know, I'm not wearing my glasses, but I want us all to wear a pair of specs this morning. So these are our biblical specs. So let me just try and explain what's going on here. Naomi is selling the piece of land that belongs to our brother Elimelech. So she's not selling the land. First things first. This is what I mean by the biblical lens. Let me try and explain what's going on. Leviticus 25, the law. 
The land must not be sold permanently. So no Israelite, no Jew, was allowed to sell their plot of land. The land was divided up by tribes. Okay, They were never allowed to sell it. Okay, so, so the land never went between tribes permanently. They weren't allowed to sell it. Why? Does anybody know why? Maybe in that verse. Yeah, it's in that verse. Why weren't they allowed to sell the land? Yeah, because whose was the land? God's. And God's reminding them that, that he's only loaning them the land. And the, and the allocation that he's established is to remain as a permanent fixture. They are never allowed to sell the land. The most they can do, if you can't sell the land and yet you do transactions, all you're doing is you're selling a temporary lease. This is what's going on. Can you see what's going on? You're just selling the rights of use. If you purchase the plot of land in Israel from another member of the community, you are merely purchasing the rights to use it for a season. And so what Naomi's doing here is she's selling the land. Look, look. I mean, has anyone here got a mortgage? I don't, I'm sure it works like this as it does back in the UK. When you've got your house on mortgage, who owns that house? The bank. Don't you ever forget that. In fact, you miss three payments, you'll soon know who owns that property. You see, so long as you owe money on it, the bank has rights to that house. It belongs to them. God has rights to the land permanently. And so what Naomi is doing, she's selling the rights to use it. Now when Elimelech and the family left the country decades earlier, he would have naturally sold the rights to the land. That's why although Naomi's back in the land now, she has no money because the land is not hers. In fact, not only doesn't she have the right to sell it, Naomi doesn't even own the land any longer. Who owns that piece of land? Apart from the fact, obviously, God, in the family line, Naomi doesn't own that piece of land. It's why she's so poor. Who owns that land still? Yes, thank you, Morag. It belongs to the family line of Elimelech, but there's an issue that there's no male descendants in the family line of Elimelech. So it's in no man's territory, if you like. So all Naomi's selling is she's trying to sell the land and bring it back into the family line. And the only people who are left in the family line, there's no immediate family line members, are Boaz, number two, and there may be further, people who are further down the line, and number one is the unnamed man. So she's hoping somebody will bring it back into the family line. Number first three. Then he said to the kinsman's redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land. And so here's the thing. Sorry, I wanted to say this to you. Is that this fella, we have to understand as thus far has shown, is utter neglect of Naomi and Ruth. Everyone knew they were back in town. Look, verse chapter 1, verse 19. When they arrived back, the whole town was stirred. Everyone knew they were back. Boaz was doing his bit. What was Boaz doing? He fed them. He ensured they were cared for. And he's number two. Now, if Boaz has done all that, we have to assume, don't we, that this fella has done nothing for this family. So it shouldn't surprise us if he's not interested in fulfilling his right just now. And to do so, here's the thing, if he, takes on, if he takes on responsibility, so if he takes on Naomi and Ruth and has children, who then becomes the heir of that land? The children. 
And here's, and here's where it gets more complicated. Whose children are the children of any offspring, this person who marries Naomi or Ruth? Whose children are they? Legally. Elimelech's. So this is what's going on here. You see, whoever marries one of these widows and has children, those children are legally the children of Elimelech. And they will get the inheritance. So, so if you fork out a stash of money and buy this piece of land or the rights to it, even as someone in the family line, soon as you have children, you've lost your investment immediately. And so, so if you've given up part of your own property to buy this property and then marry Naomi and Ruth and then have children, you've lost your investment. Can you see why it's so unappealing? So whatever Boaz wants to do, it's not going to be very hard because this is a very unappealing transaction. And so Boaz puts it forward in verse 4. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it to this fella in the presence of those seated here. So this, these witnesses. And the bloke responds, I will redeem it, but if you will not tell me, if you will redeem it, tell me. For no one has a right to do it except you, because of biblical law, Leviticus 25. No, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem that property uh, for the countrymen. And so he responds, I will redeem it. So up to now he's done nothing for this family. Boaz has got these witnesses and tells him, look, you ought to buy it. You're the next in line. And so there's some pressure here, isn't there? You know, everyone can now see he's not doing something. And so here he is, yeah, I'll do it, I'll buy it. Of course I'll buy it. And so Boaz is now on a loser. Because what does he want? He wants this transaction to fail. And so this is where Boaz is really smart because he, he keeps his ammunition, he keeps his powder dry because his real ammunition is about to come out. And so he says in verse 5, okay, fair enough, you want to buy the land? Okay, on the day that you buy the land, Naomi and Ruth, the Moabites, from Naomi and Ruth, the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow. And so here's the thing. Okay, sure, go ahead. I'm really pleased you're doing this. But do you know or are you aware that you also get Naomi and Ruth? And his thing. He's not obliged to marry Naomi. On what basis is he not obliged to marry Naomi? Because she's first in line, so he ought to be marrying the first in line. But under, under the present circumstances, he's not obliged to marry Naomi. Why is he not obliged to marry Naomi? Yes, be, well, actually, because she can't have children. Because she would by this stage, I'm assuming this is a widow. So he has to marry the next person in line who can have children. Because what's the point of this marriage? What's he got to do? He's got to raise offspring to inherit the land. Naomi's obviously beyond that. So he's got to marry the next in line. And the next in line is Ruth. So you'd think Ruth would be reasonably appealing. So the minute he hears he's got to marry one of the widows, he, he would have known this, obviously. Boaz is reminding him... His response changes from I will redeem it to verse 6. I cannot redeem it. Can you see? Why? Have a think about this. So, he, I mean, obviously, he, does, he hasn't got to marry Naomi, so this lesser, you know, a bit more opinion, he can marry the younger Ruth. But why? Why? And this is strong language. I cannot do it. What's this concern? 
Yes, he is. Because we said he may have to sell or he's got, he's got to raise money. And in those days, you didn't have bank accounts. Where was your money tied up in? Property or livestock. Okay? Right. So for him to buy this piece of land, he's got to sell something to buy it. But he's going to put himself in danger because the minute he has an offspring, the money is just splashed out. He's going to lose. And so he's now panicking. He's like, I can't do this. You know, there's no way I can do this. You know, I'm in danger of my own property. And before you know it, Boaz, I'm going to be in exactly the same situation as Naomi. No, I can't do this. And so he's found a way out. Or rather, Boaz has found the perfect... And Boaz must have known. Look, you know, Boaz is a wealthy, powerful landowner. He knows what's good. He knows who's prepared to, to, to stake their property on doing the right thing. And Boaz would have known, wouldn't he? There's no way this guy is going to risk his own fortune. So he puts it in such a way uh, that, that it's going to be disfavorable. I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. And so, unable to stomach this, unable to to take this risk. Verse 7, we see now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption of transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions. It's, it's, I guess it's a bit like, look, you're having something of mine. So they do this thing, verse 8, so the kinsman redeemer says, buy it yourself and remove his sandal. And so verse 7 is explaining what verse 8 means. The reason he's removed his sandal, he's given him his sandal. He's saying, yes, you have it. The property is yours. And in verse 9 then, uh, today you are witnesses. And it's important. We have witnesses today for legal transactions, for marriage ceremonies. And so here too. And we have to understand that here... Two things are occurring simultaneously at this very moment. The moment he takes off his sandal, passes it over. There's a property transaction going on. And what's the second thing that's going on here? There's two legally binding transactions. One is the property, the other one is the marriage. This is a marriage. It's a bizarre marriage, isn't it? But this is a marriage taking place. The minute this transaction occurs, Naomi and Ruth become legally Boaz's. And because Ruth is the, is, the, is the one able to reproduce, she's the one he takes in to be his wife. And so at this moment, a marriage occurs. There's a lot of property here. Look, all the property. I think the language is suggesting there's a lot of property. We said this was a wealthy family. A lot of properties exchanging hands. So if there's a lot of property exchanging hands, there was a lot of money put forward. This is a huge investment transaction and Boaz knows he will never see a dime or a penny or a, oh, I forget the biblical currency now. See, when you stand at the front, your, your mind just operates in a completely different way. What's the dinari, okay? Or whatever the currency may have been back then. He's invested a lot and he will see none of it. I've also acquired with the land, Ruth the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife. And it's almost as, it's the after effect, isn't it? Because oh, by the way, and I'm, I'm going to take Ruth to be my wife too. Like, that's what this is all about. Okay? 
But it just seems it's an incidental thing. Oh, by the way, I, I'm going to, you know, obviously marry Ruth. I'm quite prepared to do that. And so finally, Boaz fulfills his word to Ruth. And look how costly this is, costly this has been. This, is, this hasn't really been about the land. Boaz has wanted Ruth. And in order to acquire Ruth, okay, he's gone to these great measures, thought this thing out, okay, raised the, the capital. We don't know how he's done this. And paid it all so that he could acquire this woman that he'd fallen in love with and has given her, her his word. That's kind of what's going on. How are we doing for time? Hey, we're doing pretty well. Look, that's what's happened. What are we going to take away from it? Because this isn't in biblical, in the Bible, merely to explain how property transactions occurred or how you could acquire a wife uh, legally. Now, there's something else. Why is, uh, remind me, why is this in Scripture? Shout out the answer. Yes, and even the last part is enough just for now. Jerry, what was the last bit of that sentence you just said? The last word? Jesus. This is in Scripture for one reason, one primary reason. I mean, you think about it, God has taken, making a lot of effort to communicate His word to us. Okay, He's taken a lot of ink or whatever else they used, okay, to get this story to us. He's ensured this was preserved for thousands and thousands of years, intact, in precise detail, not a single word out of place. We do understand that, don't we? The wonderful thing about biblical manuscripts is that the truth of it has been preserved for generations and generations. God has gone through all this length for you to hear this morning about Boaz in a transaction of land and the acquiring of a bride, not just to, just to inform you about transactions or marriage, but to tell us about Jesus. To tell us about Jesus. So what does he tell us about Jesus? It's what we want to know. It's what we're here for. Hey, let, let me tell you one thing. The only thing you're going to get out of me you know, maybe you're thinking you're now going to think you're going to be shortchanged for for my income. The only thing you're going to get out of me is an image of Jesus, because that's what all of Scripture is about, and that's what we want to look at here. Okay, the grace. So here's our subheading. The sub, our subheading: the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's several things that come out of this story. We'll look at them over the next couple of weeks. The first one we're going to see in this is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. So, look, verse 9. Today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. Whatever else Boaz is doing, and this is obviously about his marriage to Ruth. He's committed to God's word here. Can you see that, what he's doing? It, it was his legal right to buy this property, and Boaz is buying it. Leviticus 25 there, he's acquiring it. What's this, what's this telling us? Thank you. Yeah, 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 I'm back, I'm back. I'm back on screen. <laughs> okay. What's this telling us about Jesus? Jesus 
What did he say? It's in, well, it's not in, in a, it's not on the screen now, but he says in Hebrews, "Here I am. I have come to do your will, O God." And in Philippians two, it'll be on the screen here. He found himself as an appearance as a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Can you see how Boaz and his commitment to God mirrors or pictures something of Jesus and his? commitment to God. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's prepared to. And he did. And here's the thing, the reason that Jesus died for us, and we sometimes get a bit mixed up here, our assumption is, Jesus died on the cross. What's our assumption? Let me, tell you, let me ask, what is our assumption? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because I am guarantee every one of us will get this wrong. So I won't embarrass you. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, yeah, see, it's wrong. That's wrong. Well, it's not, well, it's not 100% wrong. It's not primary. Okay. Yeah, yeah. See, the primary thing isn't... Now, the primary... Catherine's already got it. The primary reason Jesus died on the cross wasn't for you. You weren't the primary catalyst. You certainly were a catalyst. We are absolutely a catalyst for Jesus dying on the cross. Absolutely. He loves us. But that is not the primary catalyst. The primary catalyst is to to his father. His father sent him to die on the cross. That's why he came. And so Jesus, we see like Boaz, is committed to God. Boaz demonstrates Jesus' nature to us. The second thing we see, he mirroring, mirroring, uh, Boaz mirroring Jesus is his, his interest and care for others. So, look, Boaz does this. He does it because, because he... I mean, let me ask you, why has he been feeding Ruth and Naomi? And I can guarantee it's nothing to do with God's law. Why has he been feeding Naomi and Ruth? He's a nice guy. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Look, in simple Aussie terminology, you wonder what the words I was going to use, but we'll take the Aussie ones. He's a nice guy. Simply put, he's a caring child. He's mindful. Someone else's plight has an effect. On Boaz. That's what's going on. Look, you know, sometimes we can see a scenario, we can walk by someone, you know, who's not clothed well or can't eat well or whatever else, and if we're honest, we can be quite indifferent, can't we? And, and, and we, we justify it. Oh, that's because he didn't go to school, it's his own fault. Oh, that's because. Uh, we can justify it, can't we? Oh, he should get a job. And I'm not saying none of those things are true, but, but the way that we. That the way we, we, we can justify ignoring plight is because we justify it, don't we, somehow in our minds. Oh, well, that's why. Hey, Boaz could have done that. Boaz could have said, Ah, well, I should never have left the land. I stay. Well, where did they go? Can you see? You know, I've got my own responsibility. But there's a first in line. Boaz could have said, couldn't he? There's a first in line. Let him look after them. And yet, Boaz. And, and, and let me ask you, 
how generous was Boaz? I mean, was it a case of, okay, yeah. How generous was he? I mean, let me stay on here. How generous was he? Very generous. Very, very, very generous. He didn't just do the minimum, you know, like, you know, but look, if I just give, you know, you know when you see some of these adverts, if you give 50 cents a week, it'll feed somebody, you know. So, okay, well, I can just give my 50 cents. You do, we do realise, don't we, when they say that, they're not really after 50 cents, are they? It's a way to trigger giving. And look, you know, Boaz could have just done the 50 cents. And yet, he went way, way beyond. And the reason I'm elaborating all this is I want you to see how he's mirroring Jesus. Because, because how much does Jesus do for you and me? How much? Everything. It's not a minimal. It's not what he has to do. It's not reluctantly. You never hear from Jesus' voice ever during his entire ministry any sense of reluctancy towards us. You never say, you rabble. Look what I've got to do for you. Look what you're making me do. You never hear that from him. In fact, when you see Jesus conducting himself in the community towards the people that are demanding his blood. And look, you've got to understand this, that everyone Jesus ministered to, they were demanding his blood. Because the only way they could be in relationship with God was by blood. So every person that Jesus ministered to was demanding Jesus' death, was demanding Jesus' execution, was demanding Jesus' torture. Every person he encountered. And yet you never ever see Jesus begrudgingly be kind to them. Never. You remember the guy, the, the leper, that Jesus came down from the mountain after his great sermon? He says, Lord, if you are willing. And Jesus' response is beautiful. I am willing. And he Touch the man. A man that nobody would dare go near, let alone touch. You see, Boa shows us something of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 has these words. Look, don't do anything from selfish ambition. Consider others. You shouldn't just look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's beautiful what it is. And Boaz demonstrates this to us. And the final thing that Boaz demonstrates is, is this element in, in, in how he mirrors Jesus. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife. Tell me, how does that mirror Jesus? How does that mirror Jesus? The bride of Christ. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife. See, when you read those lines, it's your name. I have also acquired 
Ricky or Penny Lorraine or Jerry I mean this, this, this works across the church doesn't it as my bride and look you know when Boaz married Ruth this was a huge huge thing she's a foreigner a widow she's been married before okay Paul okay without property or without a proper home and worse and look we don't you might not be aware of this worse the worst thing about Ruth the, the most terrible thing biblically thank you and that is absolutely significant the worst thing that made her absolutely despicable, untouchable really in biblical law she's a Moabitess not just a Gentile look Gentiles could be welcomed into the community of God you know Gentile could get converted be a God-fearer not a Moabite Never, ever, absolutely untouchable by biblical law. Listen to this rule. It should be on the screen if you haven't already got it. Deuteronomy 23, 20. No Ammonite or Moabite, Moabites, or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. These are the most untouchable of all of the people on the planet Ever. That tenth generation is a number of, of, of infinity. It means never, never, ever. There is no way Boaz should have been marrying that woman. And yet he does the most unthinkable thing, the most unimaginable thing what no one else would even consider. And it goes after her. Look, let me tell you this. If you don't already know it, I'm going to burst some bubbles here. You and me are stinkers. Seriously. If we ever think Jesus loves me and takes me to his bride because I'm such a wonderful guy, you know, or gal, we've got it wrong. You and I are Moabites to Jesus. We're absolutely untouchable, unattractive, unappealing. Okay? There is nothing endemic about you and I that would draw Jesus to us. Look, we've got the lovebirds sitting right in front of me. Okay? And I know for sure that there was attraction between them. Okay, he fancied her. She didn't fancy him, but but he, he got some other good qualities. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Something like that. You see, the reason they're married and they're sitting there in each other's arms, okay, is because things about each other attracted them. You know, whatever it may be, there was nothing attractive about us to Jesus. Nothing, and yet he loved us. Now that's love. And yet, he loved us. 
Yet He came to seek and to save us. And yet He went to the cross, yes, primarily because of His Father's Word, but because of us too. Christian, He loved the unlovable when He loved you. And that always does something... Whenever I'm relating to Jesus, it does something good for me. It reminds me, hey, I'm not special. Which, which makes the fact that Jesus loves me all the more special. Can you see it? Because there's nothing great about me. Nothing. We've said this before. Every one of us, if, if people really knew what we were like, they know that we're stinkers. And yet, He loves you. And so let me encourage you here, Christian. He loves you when you knew that you were a stinker. It means that He loves you today still. Though you may be a stinker. And so it gives you this confidence that the relationship you have with him is eternal. And so Boaz shows to us something of what Jesus has done for us. How far he went to acquire us. What he did, what he paid. And so, as you leave now, and Jerry's already talked about God touching us and healing us, you can leave with this assurance. God is going to take care of whatever is troubling me. Whatever is bothering me. Whatever is weighing me down. Whatever concerns me. Someone has gone through this much trouble to acquire me. Isn't now going to be negligent about my concern? So go in peace. You're loved. You're cared for. You're committed to it through eternity. You're being watched over. Your every concern is Jesus' concern. And my last word, when you read or look at Boaz, I'm going to carry on next week with a bit more. I want you to see, I want us to see Jesus.